welcome to Standing in the Gap. I'm your host preacher, Brandon Harrell. Standing in the Gap is a weekly audio Bible study dedicated to the verse-by-verse exposition of the KJV Scriptures. It is my prayer that through these studies, the lost will be saved, the believer edified, and most of all, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be magnified and honored through the proclamation of His Word. For correspondence information, please stay tuned until the end of the broadcast. May the Lord bless you as you listen to this week's Standing in the Gap. All right, this is Preacher Brandon. Turn with me, if you're able, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 3, again this week. And we'll read together these first six verses as we continue this study of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and the leathern girdle about his loins, And his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. As we began to look at the ministry of John the Baptist here in Matthew chapter 3, we noticed first of all his arrival. John came under direct orders from the king of heaven, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He was a man sent from God as John calls him in his gospel. He was sent to be the forerunner or the herald uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made here his official public appearance. That's what the word came here in the Greek denotes, one who officially is appearing for uh, for a particular duty or action. He was the herald that preceded the Lord of Lords. He showed up in the wilderness, or what Luke calls the hill country of Judea. This was that densely populated region where his parents raised him. John was a hill preacher, a country preacher, if you will, on a mission from God. So we looked at his arrival, and we began then to examine his announcement. Verse 1, as we said last week, tells us what John was doing when he came to the wilderness. He was preaching. We noted that the word used here is caruso in the Greek. It means literally to herald, to publish, or to proclaim. He was heralding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the arrival of the Lord of Lords. I told you that preaching in the strictest sense is simply to proclaim unequivocally what God has said. I repeat it this week, thus saith the Lord, is the only proper preface to true preaching. If you'll preach what the Bible says, you'll never have to apologize for what you've preached. John received a definite call to preach in God's, uh, to preach God's Word. I asked a question of many of you last time. Are you called to preach? You brothers who listen to the broadcast, are you called to preach? Have you answered that call? If so, preach. Have you not yet answered it? Then answer it and preach. God is calling men to preach. We ought to rejoice that he is. This world needs more God-called, spirit-filled preachers. It needs them now more than ever. John received a definite call to preach. 
So this would, I, I think, uh, describe the character of John's announcement. He was preaching. He was proclaiming. But what of the content of John's preaching? What did John preach? Our text tells us plainly uh, that in verse 2, he was saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was preaching repentance. The word is metanoeo. The compound word is made up of meta, which means afterward or behind, and noeo, meaning to exercise the mind. Together, it denotes reconsideration or to think differently afterward. It is always associated with one's attitude as that which produces one's actions. Therefore, we may define it as Mounts did when he said to make a change of principle and practice. A.T. Robertson gives it this definition. He says it means to change the mind and so the life. To change the mind and so the life. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of course. Many who wish to eradicate this word from their vocabulary but realize the impossibility of such a a feat apart from the abandonment of Scripture altogether would simply argue that because the word primarily deals with the mind, that it does not necessarily have anything to do with the course of one's actions. This notion is foreign to the understanding of all the biblical, biblical writers. It is so of the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, we read, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. The repentance Isaiah commanded would result in a ceasing of evil action, a putting away of evil doings. Jeremiah 7 verse 3 states, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Ezekiel 18 verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his way, saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. So when God commands repentance through Ezekiel, he says it is the equivalent of turning from transgressions. I heard a man say one time that there's no such thing as repenting of your sins. Well, Ezekiel didn't know that, and God didn't give him repentance, a message of repentance that didn't include turning from your sin. It does include that. The same is true of the apostles. Peter said in Acts chapter 3 verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted. Be converted to change directions is the idea of that word converted. Paul, uh, reminding those on Mars Hill in Acts 17 of God's command upon them, says God commands all men everywhere to repent. He was led to preach this because he'd seen the line of idols that they worshipped down the side of the road. And no one in their right mind could say that when he done, when God commanded them to repent, that there would be no expectation that they would turn from those idols and cease to worship them. Matter of fact, that's what he said of the Thessalonians. Paul, talking about them, said they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. John the Baptist himself expected that true repentance would have a profound effect on one's actions. In verse 8 of this very chapter, he says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. 
I want to say this, and I, I say this unequivocally without apology. Repentance that is not visible in the life is not gospel repentance. Repentance that is not visible in the life is not gospel repentance. If you say, I've repented, but you continue to do all of the things you always did and sin in the same ways habitually, then you've not truly repented. Others, undeterred by the utter denial of this reality, deny the necessity of repentance altogether. They would have you think that repentance is not essential in New Testament salvation, that it is by faith alone no repentance required. That repentance is mentioned in the New Testament, as mentioned in the New Testament, is only for Jews or for those saved prior to Calvary. How absurd this is. Some run to the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts. Peter mentioned, uh, they, they say something like this, Peter never mentioned repentance to Cornelius in that text, and yet he himself declared him to be saved, so obviously then repentance is not necessary to salvation. Well, it's true that the word repentance doesn't appear, uh, doesn't appear in Acts chapter 10, but the scriptures don't end in, ch in Acts chapter 10. In chapter 11, Peter went back to Jerusalem, and the brethren there contended with him concerning the very idea of Gentile salvation. He rehearsed the events at Cornelius' house to them, and Acts 11:18 says, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Apparently, Cornelius and those saved at the same time as him had, in fact, repented. Paul in Acts 20, verses 20 and 21 said, I kept nothing back. I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul unashamedly preached repentance and faith. They are two sides of the same coin. If Paul preached it, I want to preach it. If John the Baptist preached it, I want to preach it. If Jesus preached it, if the prophets preached it, I think we need to continue to preach repentance. God demands repentance of all men everywhere. Did not Jesus say as much when he spake to the woman caught in the very act of adultery and said to her, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more? In uh, the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus said, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. There's no joy in the heart of God over unrepentant sinners, but the joy bells ring when a sinner repents. That said, repentance is not, as some claim, a works-based salvation. The text we read in Acts 11 said that God had granted repentance. Repentance is a gift to be received in the same way that faith is. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God grants repentance and faith to the sinner who believes and comes to him. He, shall, uh, he, he, he grants these things. These are gifts. It's not something that we do in and of ourselves. Now, I've referenced twice already, Acts 17, where we talked about the command of God to repent. He tells us why there in Acts 17, verse 30. And he says, because he hath appointed, in verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. 
There is an appointment set. God has appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness. The Hebrew writer said it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. You will not cancel this appointment. You won't be late for it. You won't postpone it or in any other fashion avoid it. You will face it. There God will judge you in righteousness by the standard of absolute perfection as manifested in the person of his Son, of whom it is said, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. It was not possible because Christ was sinless. He is the standard of righteousness that God demands. You and I fall short of this standard, but thank God for 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Perfection is out of our reach unless we obey the words of Jesus, who himself said, Repent ye and believe the gospel. What will it be today, sinner? Will you repent, believe the gospel, come to Christ and be saved, or persist in your sin, and wind up in hell. Next time, we'll look at the cause for John's announcement, for the kingdom of heaven is, hand, is at hand. Until then, this has been Preacher Brandon. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Standing in the Gap. It is my desire that today's episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to contact me, my email is bcharrell83 at protonmail.com. That's B-C-H-A-R-R-E-L-L 83 at ProtonMail.com. You can also reach me by phone at 828-777-4923. Tune in next time for Standing in the Gap.